Welcome to this Arts and Heritage podcast, hosted by Arts and Heritage's senior curator, Andrea Hawkins. In this episode, we discuss the Travelling Queer People's History Show with curator and creative producer E.J. Scott and the performance artiste Bird La Bird. A spoof performance arts history lecture delivered in academic drag, the Travelling Queer People's History Show reveals and explores the lives of queer people absent or erased from dominant historical narratives. We discuss the lives of queer people in former prisons such as Millbank Penitentiary, now the site of Tate Britain, and the ways their experiences were brought to life via archival research, artistic performance, and the 2017 Queer British Art Show. So today we're going to have a conversation about the Travelling Queer People's History Show between E.J. Scott, curator and creative producer, and Bird La Bird, performance artiste. Could you talk about what Travelling Queer People History Show is? So I'll take that one. First of all, Andrea, hi. It's really nice to be here on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me and my all-round amazing history friend, EJ. Uh, So the Travelling Queer People's History Show is a spoof performance art lecture in which uh, I perform in academic drag and by that I mean that I pretend to be a historian and uh, through the process of creating the work I also pretend to be a historian in the way that I uh, conduct research. So the show uses uh, comedy uh, hopefully it's very funny to basically talk about queer histories of prisoners which are not funny at all. The subject matter is deadly serious and the the sort of focal point of the show and the, the beginning of it is starts from the prison that used to Millbank Penitentiary that once upon a time, it was it stood on the site where Tate Britain is now, and the show was originally created as a response to the queer British art show, which was held at Tate Britain in twenty seventeen. And I I first came along and saw this work, and and have been lucky enough to be able to be in Tate as a member of the audience sitting on the floor in the exact space that the prisoners existed and were held in the past. So this sort of, this immersive experience of understanding that you were in this same space at a queer event, being queer, travelling through time, it was just quite extraordinary. And from there, went on to curate the next Queer and Now Festival at Tate and West Yorkshire Queer Stories in, in, in Yorkshire. And so have been able to see the show grow and be presented in different spaces to different audiences. And as the research has grown, more and more characters have been brought to light by Bird that I think increasingly have touched more and more queer people across the UK because it's impossible not to be deeply and profoundly moved 
by their experiences of what bird has managed to unearth. And with that in mind, I sort of want to touch on the the research that you did, Bird, to uncover the lives and the histories of all of these queer people who had otherwise been written out of history. That, to me, seemed like a, seems like a mammoth task. How did you do that? Where did you start? So, first of all, I started to learn as much about Millbank Penitentiary as I possibly could. And one of the routes I went down is to also learn a lot about Jeremy Bentham because he designed the first... The prison he built didn't actually get designed, but, like, it's all related to the history of the pan-optican and all of that. But then the site was used as a holding bay for convicts before they were sent out to Australia in the early to the mid part of the 19th century. And so what I did was basically started to look in convict archives as well. And one of the really interesting things about convict history is there's loads of documentation and there's also loads of historians have done incredible work, like mapping prisoners' stories and all sorts of different ways. So I started to look for anything sort of to do with queerness and transportation. And via that, I was able, to, in a sort of rudimentary way, to piece together either different archives or the work of different historians like Eleanor, Conlin, Cassells, Blathnide, Nolan, uh, Tim Causer, uh, three historians who sort of work around transportation history. Like the incredible thing about Millbank is, is that you're literally able to find the cells that the prisoners were held in and then you can trace them all the way to either Tasmania or Norfolk Island, which is a tiny island on the north of New Zealand. There was a lot of queer panic about the penal colonies, but then that makes it difficult for us as queer historians because the queer histories are sort of somewhere in the middle of the hysteria about queerness and then the reality of how, you know, same-sex loving and gender-variant prisoners lived. How did that sort of resonate with you, E.G., as a, as a contemporary curator or a curator working with contemporary social and societal issues? How did you get involved in working with Bird? Well, it's, the, the thing that strikes me about Bird's research is the fact that it is combined with the performativity to create a reenacted experience, you know, a, a way of, of queer people locating themselves in the past via the documentation that she's exposed. And so this multidisciplinary approach where she's looking at criminal records, she's looking at the social history, she's looking at issues surrounding the empire, right, and the convicts and et cetera. And so it's the multidimensional mapping of these stories coming together as one within the performance that enables, I think, it facilitates the audience being able to go on that journey back. And, and I think that when we look 
around at the queer community at large. And it's, it's a, a complex community. There's the O, the G, the B, the, right? So there's, there's not one story that fits all. But what I think we can locate within the queer community is that we share a thirst for finding out more about the history of our communities and how that has impacted and shaped us today and what still resonates. And so in, in a way, these queer history shows play a broader social function that brings us all together, that reunites a sense of community in a time that is becoming increasingly fraught within the community itself. And so I find it is a very powerful mechanism to uniting us when we look back through this historic lens at the really horrific oppressions that these people faced and the way that, again, to use this word intersectional, the way this crosses over class, it crosses over race, it crosses over gender identity, over sexualities, right? But it's writ large in the documentation. It's literally there, sodomy, you know? And it's just like how extraordinary that we can think about these things and and trace the way that they're still enacted in our lives today. And for me, there's something very powerful when, when the history becomes heritage because you bring in the performance and you bring in the space, you know, seeing it at Tate Britain, literally sitting in that space was, was a shock to the system because actually what we were doing with the Queer and Now Festival was reclaiming that space, you know, attending such large-scale queer artistic festivals is actually a form of protest in the manner of of occupation. You know, we are owning that space when we're in there, we're visible, we're there as a community, we're engaging with the collection, we're throwing our own narrative over the top of the collections, we're interpreting it through our own lenses, we're disrupting the hierarchy of who owns history and who has the knowledge to talk about it, simply by being there, right? And so there's something that comes together in this work by Bird that brings all these different layers and and mixes them up all at once that really, for me, talks about where we're at with queer culture today and what our values are and what we're interested in. This is more than pride as a party. This is some really serious stuff that's going on here. And I, I really am quite, the pride for me comes in of being proud of artists like Byrne for the importance of the work they're doing and proud about the community's thirst to engage with such difficult topics, you know, and such difficult histories and then reflect on, well, hang on, What's going on today? Do we still have these kind of, you know, these class issues? Do we still have these issues that we need to talk about race and inherited privilege? And, you know, and and this brings all those issues to the fore. It also seems that uh, I think, Bird, you wrote somewhere about travelling queer people's history show around archives having the power to construct a dominant narrative. And this project has very much been a way of, as EJ said, disrupting and challenging and creating space for a community's heritage that otherwise has been overlooked. And is that why you feel it is so important to kind of create work in response to archival material? 
Yeah, well, I, I think so one of the things that happens is, because uh, the other thing that I'm absolutely insistent on doing is that queer working class lives are at the centre of the work and also the work acknowledges the history of race, empire, racism and homophobia as much as possible, is sensitive to disability history because I think the thing is with archives is that sometimes those histories that I've just spoken about get missed out of both archives. So it's like so often... I can be sat, I love watching history documentaries on the TV, but I love to hate them as well because I'm sat there going like, uh, what? This this isn't what I understand of this particular thing. And and where are we in this? And if we are in it, it's it's not the working class queers and it's not the black and brown queers and it's often not the trans queers either. But then also in some... LGBTQ plus history, I think that there's also a reproduction of those uh, dominant narratives there as well. And that can be equally frustrating. Um, You know, and EJ and I have both been, you know, experienced queer history events where you're thinking that this conversation about the past should be much more inclusive and there's a lot more opportunities to think about class to think about empire and they don't they, they don't happen because it's not just the reproduction sorry to interrupt you but it's not just the reproduction of dominant narratives it's the reproduction of privilege right and so in actual fact what we're trying to do if there's such a thing as queering history surely it is that we want to delve deeper than Horace Walpole at Strawberry Hill do you know what I mean like that then in actual fact what are the values of queer history? What's the point, you know? What are we here to queer? And and surely it's the privilege. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, actually, because I was just going to say, uh, Becton, who is, I think, a contemporary or just before or after. EJ organised another, another event at the Tate earlier this year, and it was about what does a queer museum look like? And basically it was uh, all uh, cutie pop uh, speakers, either artists or historians. And it really spoke to me like in a really profound way because it was about things like the theft of objects from uh, museums and like how you can have a queer, you can't really have a queer history without sort of decolonising the museum as well and then sort of thinking about what does decolonising mean and I I really sort of got a lot from those narratives in that event because I, I think that queer history in the museum is an opportunity to absolutely shape the foundations of the museum and and to sort of say, what the hell is this? What is this history that we're talking about here? And who's it for? And who's in the archive and who's not? And who's in the room and who's not? And how can we mash all of that up a bit? And and I think one of the things that we have to do as, as culture producers within museums is understand that when you bring queer artists like yourself in, Bird, is that... You, you have to be given the freedom 
to write your own work and your program. You can't get a queer artist in and go, hi, I'd like you to do a joyful piece for this section, you know, do some drag. Why don't you do some drag, right? In actual fact, that's getting, you know, that that what what you actually need to do is understand that queer artists are likely to come in and critique your institution, <laughs> you know. They're likely to come into the space and go, ha, 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 there's things we'd like you to think about. That's what's great, right? That's that's actually what museums should be for. They should be these sites for thinking and challenging what potentially has gone on in the past that needs to change in the future. And and it did come up with, with the what does a cutie pop museum look like with those narratives. There's no such thing as decolonising the museum. That's like saying you can take religion out of the church, yeah? What you need to do is be anti-racist, okay? And so you can't decolonise a museum without giving back objects and lands. It's, it's a physical act. It's not a metaphor, right? And, and we too easily slip into these languages of we know what the issue is today, so we're just going to use this word really loosely and really frequently and it'll make us look like we're doing something, right? In actual fact, what queer artists tend to do is come in and go, yo, you're not or you're not doing it fast enough and I'm going to write a performance about it and too bad if your audience is here, you know, and, and that's, that's exactly what you do. You unnerve the institution bird in a really important way that is broader than only suiting a queer audience. It's for all people to benefit from, right? And so this is why queer history is an LGBT history, right? Queer history is for everybody because it's a process. It's it's a process. It's not it's not just a classroom. Although in actual fact, Bird, yours actually was. it's absolutely and and it's like there's no separation either it's like you know I want to hear the queer history of the industrial revolution for example you know and histories of factories and you know another show is about the workhouse it's like it's not a separate we are not a separate thing in the corner we are part of mainstream history and and it's for everyone the heart of it and the the process as as ej's talked about this kind of idea of process that process is built into the project as well because you collaborate with so many different people and different communities and the work itself is shown in different places so ej you've taken it to london and leeds wasn't it the festival in Leeds? To the West Yorkshire you, Queer you, Stories you, project, yeah. Yeah. So it really is about inclusivity. So everything from the kind of geographic spread and it travelling itself and going around the country to working with different community groups and having different artists, collaborators. Could you talk about that, please? Sure. Well, I think that one of the most exciting things in 2019 so before the pandemic was within the space of a couple of months I performed the show to the Lawnmowers Theatre Company in uh, Newcastle and they are a theatre company of adults with learning disabilities and it was amazing it was what it what a gift and then a couple of months later I performed it at Cambridge University you know for lots of professional historians and uh, and all of that and 
And the thing I, you know, I'm really proud of about the work is that exactly the same material could fit those two audiences and be really like fun and engaging and and that's my uh, dream really is to is is to make work like that and carry on refining it I write to historians a lot and uh, EJ's helped me to sort of you know how to go to a physical archive and things like that it's like I had no idea about doing things like that before I started this and so I will contact the historians and introduce myself and more often than not they really you know are really excited by what I do and then in terms of collaborators in terms of uh, I've been working with Jan Willem van Bosch he um, directed the work and did the dramatic with me as well And there's also artists who do voiceovers, like Liz Carr is a narrator. And there's an audio description for vision impaired. It's not just for vision impaired audiences. Uh, It enhances it for everyone. So Amelia Cavello from Quiplash supported me on that and sort of really helped me get my get my audio description thing on and uh, Liz narrated it. I think the access is starting to get better at queer events as well and it's like it's we're all learning aren't we and if we don't have a particular barrier ourselves it's like sometimes it can be you know in an ableist world it's like there's a there's a set of work that either individuals or institutions need to do to move on in that regard. So when you took the the project on the road and you went round the country I mean you 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 took it to 10 venues didn't you something like that yeah yeah and EJ you worked on this project at two of those venues how was it received by the audience everyone loves it it's it's just hands down like it's a rip-roaring success but I would almost prefer to answer that from my personal experience because I had the joy of seeing it myself as a member of the audience before I was involved with the work that Bird does and and before I was even involved with Tate, actually. It was the year before I was involved with Tate. And I was profoundly affected. You know, the, the fact that we were thinking about... we I guess... I guess I was so affected because for years and years and years, we've scrabbled around to be included in museums, right? We've, we've been jumping up and down on, on the periphery going, no, queer people existed, you know, like for what feels like centuries itself, you know? And so we then had this huge, remarkable national profiled exhibition, Queer British Art, right? But you can only rely on the collections you have to build an art exhibition at that level, right? And so the fact of the matter is it was largely collected by very wealthy white people of the upper echelons of society who did it according to their taste. And so 
a lot of this work was commissioned by them as well. They weren't commissioning things that would displace their reputation in society either, right? And particularly when you're thinking about a collection by Tate Britain, you know, it's, it's, it's founded in this era. It is of this time. It's now people quite often mistake Tate Britain as, as only being that. In actual fact, it is British artists up until the present day. But essentially you were relying on a collection that doesn't visibly contain lots and lots of black queer people having bum sex. <laughs> you know, like, it's just, it's, it, it's not there. So when we finally get our moment in the spotlight, oh my, it's, it's, a, it's an exhibition with queer in the title by a national institution. It's going to be noticed around the world. Hurrah! We're very, very grateful for the fact that it exists. But... But the layer of queer history that by and large it represents is, is a layer of queer history that doesn't belong to me. It's not my people, right? It doesn't talk to me about things that I can imagine I might have gone through if I was there back then, right? What talks to me are working class stories. And we so often talk about this being hidden history. I think what Bird's done is go, that's a really lazy excuse for not talking about working class queer history. It's all there in the archive when you're clever enough and determined enough to take a multidisciplinary research approach, right? That actually it's not hidden. It hasn't been researched. And so for me to think about, and, and because, you know, I, I grew up in Australia, for me, this, the interconnectivity of the fact that it related to this colonial history that I feel so passionate about and that affects so many people from so many different areas of the colonies who are here today in Britain, you know, there were these layers of richness that were beyond queer histories that I had been exposed to in the past. And so it opened up a world of possibilities for me about going, aha, that's how you do it, you know. And, and it was really, it's it's really p- important piece of work because of that. Can I just say as well, I, I think that's so beautifully said because I saw the performance at the Alphabeti in Newcastle. And it was an absolute privilege to watch Bird perform. And I am getting goosebumps now thinking about it, about what I saw and what I, and how you made me feel. Um, because the narrative about Alonzo Johnson, who is the centre point of the Travelling Queer People's History Show, is so beautiful and full of energy and full of life and full of struggle and fight, constantly trying to make their life work for them, that it was profoundly moving and you could connect with it in a really immediate way. Can we talk a little about Alonzo? Because they are such an extraordinary character. Absolutely. Thanks, Andrea. And, and actually, uh, Alonso is a great way of, of talking about the Tate as well, because Alonso was held in Millbank before they were transported. And so 
Alonzo Johnson was a a travelling performer and that's also partly why the show has got the travelling history show in it. And so they were a homeless travelling comedian and they were born in about 1824 and when they were 19 they were caught having queer sex in Newcastle with David Denham. But the really incredible thing about the story is, is that um, that in the newspapers it said that Alonso had been going about the town some weeks dressed in women's clothes. And it's just like, I mean, even just saying that, it's just so incredible that, we have this person who was gender variant of some way or another, was queer, was homeless, was an artist. And basically their first ever time they got arrested was when they were 17 and they were nicking props to use in their performances in in Kendall. And so there's this sort of performativity like they also stole items of women's clothing they stole priest robes and Alonso lived until they were 67 and they died in a pauper's hospital in uh, Van Diemen's land and they were held in uh, Norfolk Island was the worst penal colony in the British Isles they were on chain gangs like can you imagine being a, a sensitive gender variant performer type being on a chain gang it's like it's just um it's extraordinary and and it's like I think that Alonso's story is is of national and international significance and it's also of huge significance to uh to Newcastle as well because you know we have like this it's it's all like what it's like is it's like finding gold, you know what I mean? It's and and you can sift and sift and sift, but then like these little these little archival gems come up where you can prove this, you know, and 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 there's more to say about Alonso, but that's the potted history. I feel like as well that at the moment. The increasing hostile environment towards uh, transgender and uh, non-binary people in the UK, it's absolutely horrific. The cultural oppression, not only that the culture fits into this because we're talking about culture at the moment, but it's not just culture, it's it's medical, it's, it, it's social, it's about putting pressure on families and young children. And I feel like when these trans potential and transcestors are in the archive it's a way of sort of being able to connect with a really long history where trans people have been around forever and and we can prove that even more because we know that there were trans intersex people who were held in in Millbank penitentiary and I feel like that's why there's so much sort of fuss over so-called woke history is because it places these lives in a in a much broader and longer historical context. 
Is there anything that you want to say to one another or to, to or about this project that hasn't been raised in the conversation so far? I just want to thank you, Jay, for seeing my work really and giving me, like, having the, the faith in it and giving me the confidence and platform that means the world and you know I think you've opened up incredible spaces EJ and I didn't want to do the work virtually because I really love being in front of live audiences so last year I didn't take the show anywhere and it's been on pause and it's like in that pause we've had this huge historical juncture of not only COVID, but also of Black Lives Matter and of the statues coming down. And I just need to acknowledge that when the show goes back, it's not going to be the same as it was beforehand. Because in a way, like that public fight around it, history that happened is sort of like, I hope that the work sort of speaks to a lot of that and I and I hope that when I pick the work up again and I start traveling again I can uh, do honor and justice to some of that energy you know that erupted in 2020 and you know I feel like as a performance artista I have a responsibility to to carry that and honor that in my way I just you've worked so hard buddy and it's such important work we just need you to keep going with it it feels to me like the Travelling People's Queer History show could never end. It feels to me like there's chapter after chapter after chapter that can go into it, that it's a lifelong work, you know, and that actually it just it's just going to grow and grow and grow. And the more locations and the more places you can both take it to but then delve into the archives when you're there as well, you know, I just, it's going to be a massive body of work you know, and so just keep going because from the bottom of my heart, it has affected me deeply and I know it's affected people all over the country now and this is about opening up voices beyond the elite queer framework, you know, and gets what, that's most of us, you know, (laughs) this is about our community talking to our communities in the past. So it's it's just a gift and it's, it's, it's got to just keep going. I totally agree. It's fabulous. Thank you so much, EJ and Bird. Honestly, you are just such wonderful people. It's been an absolute pleasure to have a chat with you over Zoom. And none of our dogs misbehaved. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining us for this Arts and Heritage podcast. You've been listening to curator and creative producer EJ Scott and performance artiste Bird LaBird. This episode was hosted by Andrea Hawkins and produced by Tim O'Donoghue and Kiki Claxton. To hear more about Arts and Heritage, sign up to our newsletter at artsandheritage.org.uk. Thanks for listening.